You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Now I'm going to ask you to kind of engage with me. This is a bit interactive, so let's start here. Uh, turn to your neighbor to your right or left. It doesn't matter to me. Just pick somebody and uh, use the same voice that you were shouting at the Seahawks, I think, today when they were playing. Uh, uh, so use that same voice and, uh, and, uh, and shout, uh, neighbor. Yeah. Pretty good, pretty good. Come on, let's try it again, even a little, a little louder. Neighbor, yeah. what's your disconnect? All right, find somebody else. It doesn't matter who the other person is and just say, somebody else? What's my disconnect? All right, all right, praise God. Come on, put your hands together. Sorry, that was outstanding. I noticed in preparing for uh, my time here with you that uh, your pastor was leading you through a study in Galatians and as I thought about what uh, you've been studying, it just dawned on me that God is obviously trying to call you corporately as a congregation and you, each of you individually, into a deeper relationship with him. God is saying, come walk closer to me and with me. And I'm sure that uh, the case exists here as it does all over the country when the sermon is over and people like you leave the worship service. There are inevitably those who say, you know, I fully believe in Jesus and I deeply want to uh, have a closer relationship with him, but I just find it difficult to connect with Christ on a more deep level than what I'm already connected. And so the question that really kind of comes out, whether you've ever given voice to it or not, is what's my disconnect? So tonight I want to spend just a few moments uh, talking about at least one possibility that might be at the root of your and maybe ours disconnect that keeps us from going deeper in our relationship with God. Social scientists suggest that in the life of all believers, ultimately, every now and then we discover that resting beneath the surface of our awareness is often something that they call hidden rifts. Everybody say hidden rifts. Small tears, if you will, in our relationship with God that has happened at some point over the course of our faith journey. Usually they get there because of some unanswered prayer, some unfulfilled dream, some tragic, untimely death, for example, of a loved one, or some relationship that we've invested everything in that ultimately unravels, some business, a dream that uh, we have worked for collapses and implodes. And ultimately, God does not do what we expect God to do in those circumstances. God does not rescue. God does not save. And oftentimes, God remains silent at the very time that we think that we more desperately, most desperately need to hear from God. And as a result of that, there's a tear in our relationship. We may never give voice to it. We may never say it. But uh, somewhere in the base of our soul is this is this, this tear in our relationship that, that in a tough moment says, I'm not really sure whether I can trust 
God. And it was that rift that kind of lies at the center of our disconnect. Well, the first thing we have to do if, in fact, we discover these rifts is to confess. Everybody say confession. And uh, Jesus teaches us and gives us permission about confessing uh, our genuine feelings about God because on the cross at his most dark hour, we hear Jesus quoting the psalmist as Jesus gives voice to these words, my God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? And in so declaring those words, he has given permission to every believer and to everyone that when you are feeling like your relationship with God, that there's a breach, when you feel like God has abandoned you, uh, when you feel like God has let you down, uh, Jesus is saying to us, it's all right to be honest, to confess it, to declare, God, I just don't think I can depend on you. You let me down. But before Jesus ended uh, his horrendous time on the cross, he would utter these words, Father, into thy hand, I commit my spirit. And in that moment, Jesus teaches us that while it is very human to go through seasons when we feel that we can't fully trust God, and while it is appropriate for us to confess our feelings that God has abandoned us or let us down, we should not rest there. We should not remain there, but we should engage with God in the kind of way that before it's all said and done, we work it through and we come back into a place of full, fully trusting God. How do we do that? Well, first there's confession. But after we make our confession, it opens us up to what I call examination. Everybody shout examination. It's at that moment that we then say, well, let me look a little closer at this thing that I call faith and at my faith experience and let me examine it a little closer, the fabric out of which it is made, the foundation upon which it stands. And let me just make sure that it is everything that I think that it is. So let me lead us in a time of examination tonight by sharing with you a true story of a friend that my wife and I know very, very well. And Let's put it in juxtaposition to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego teaches us. And through that juxtaposition, maybe there is a lens that we can look a little closer at our own faith experience. I'm going to call her Jackie. That's not a real name, but that's the name I'll use tonight. And uh, Jackie, for at least 19 years, uh, served the Lord with gusto. She uh, rose to the highest levels of governance in her own church. She could preach and teach the word with wonderful and powerful eloquence. And ultimately, she was just amazing at leading people like you all in worship. But in the 19th year of her marriage, it unexpectedly imploded, left her life in complete shadows. And as a result of the brokenness of her life and the rift between her and God, she ended up in an illicit relationship long before the divorce came final. And As we sat and talked about it, she said to me, I know, Pastor, that this relationship is not right. It's not what God would have. It doesn't fit the biblical paradigm. She said, but you know, truthfully, I did it God's way for 19 years, and look at where it got me. She simply said, I've been there and done that. A conversation with Jackie, this honest conversation revealed both 
uh, for her and for me and for all of us that oftentimes it's possible for us to serve God for 10 years and 15 years and 20 years with, with full vigor and only in the time of great tragedy that brings a magnifying glass onto our faith. Only in those moments do we ultimately discover that we have something that I would like to call conditional commitment. Everybody say conditional commitment. And built into the very fabric of our faith experience is this conditional commitment. It sounds something like this. I will serve God if he continues to bless my family. I will love and worship God if he preserves my health or heals me of this disease. I will continue to follow and love God if he blesses and prospers my business and fulfill my dream. If, 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 if. Somebody say if. I call this the hidden if. It, it often lies within, at the very base of our experience. And within every hidden if is what I call unseen deal breakers. Because the suggestion is, if God does these things, I will continue to be faithful and trust and believe in him. However, if God does not bless my family and save my marriage or rescue this relationship from crisis, if God does not heal me of this disease or deliver my business from a collapse, if God does not, deal breaker. Don't think I can trust it. That was Jackie's story. And when we look closely at our own faith, sometimes to our surprises, it's our story. Now sometimes we don't use the word if. Most of us say, well, we would never say anything like that. But often we will use the word because. Everybody say because. I'm sure you've heard this statement before. I'm sure that you've uttered it in some form. I love the Lord because he's blessed my family. I love the Lord because he's healed my body. I love the Lord because of how he took a small ideal and blessed it into a great uh, business. I love the Lord because this is even biblical, of course, and we sing about it in our worship psalms. You remember the psalm, this Psalms 103, as he declares, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name and forget not his benefit. Forget not all of the becauses. And it is appropriate for us to have uh, worked into our faith uh, a real awareness and a deep gratitude for God's blessings. That's appropriate. But our faith must not simply rest in the things that God has done for us. The roots of our faith must go beyond what he has done and rest actually in who God is. Our faith must be anchored in who God is. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego teaches us tonight that if anyone had cause to have faith anchored in the becauses, it was them. 
The Babylonians having slammed into Jerusalem, leaving death and disarray, it was the grace of God that preserved these three Hebrew boys that they were able to get to Babylon. That's a good because. In Babylon, the grace of God moved on the king and he selected a small group of young men to invest in and to educate and to elevate and they were picked among that small group of young men. That was a wonderful because. At the point of this text, they have been elevated to the highest corner offices of the Babylonian kingdom and uh, they are wealthy and they are powerful and they are most healthy at this time. Uh, wonderful becauses. And yet in this text that we've selected, they teach us that the revelation of who God is must always be greater than what God does. And as we watch them in this text, we discover that, that unlike many of us preachers, this preacher included, uh, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they did not use the blessings of God as a measuring stick by way, by the, uh, by, by a way in which they determined his integrity, but rather they, they used the blessings of God as a window to peer through and to discern a God that was far greater than anything he had ever done. The revelation of God. And so when this king built a statue, that was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, a statue of himself because he was not simply satisfied with being royal. He wanted to be treated as a deity. And when he gave the command and convened the kingdom of Babylon and the music was played and ordered everybody to bow and to, 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 to respect his sense of deity, these three boys refused to bow. And so he brought them to him and he put, him, put them in front of him ultimately. And he said, look guys, let me ask you something. Who gave you those corner offices? Who signs your paycheck? What do you mean you're not going to bow to me? I'm the one who elevated you. Look, you see that fiery furnace over there? I'm going to heat it up seven times hotter than it has ever been before. And if you do not respect the deity that I feel that I am, I'm going to throw you into that fiery furnace. And let's see what God will deliver you from that fiery furnace. In other words, the only God that matters for you right now, Nebuchadnezzar says, is me. Those boys, they look at this king. They look at that fiery furnace. They look at it and they realize that there was a great probability that they were going to end up in that fiery furnace. And they realize that there was a low probability that they would survive the fiery furnace. And it's at this moment, their faith and the roots of their faith is revealed to go much deeper than what God had done. And they declared, oh king, listen, we need not defend ourselves in this matter before you. We really don't have to debate with you about this. Our God is able. Everybody say, is able. Is Come on, shout it again. Is able. Is our God, the God of the universe, is able to heal our bodies. Our God is able to preserve our marriages. Our God is able to bless and transform our businesses. Our God is able. But, somebody shout but. But, if he does, wait for it, say it together. Right in that knot 
that they reveal that there were no conditions on their commitment. There were no deal breakers inside of their trust of this awesome God. That even though they were in a predicament that they couldn't understand and they didn't know why God was not necessarily moving on their behalf, somehow they had concluded whether God moves or whether God doesn't, whether we end up in the furnace or whether we do not, that the God that we serve continues to be trustworthy. We will trust him. Despite the darkness and the lack of our human ability to explain him. Now, this is a matter of perspective. Everybody say perspective. perspective. Come on, shout it. Perspective. perspective. I help you to realize uh, the perspective that has to shape our thinking in order to get to where these guys got to. Uh, my daughter's nine years old and she likes for me to take her to the beach. We love to build sandcastles. And you know that in order to build a really big sandcastle, you got to go to the uh, beach and get buckets of water and bring it back. And it's really great. Two years ago, she liked for me to take her out to where the water was. She liked to be close to the water. She never liked, however, to get in the water. And so when the tide went out, I took her and we took a bucket and and, and as it came back in, I put my bucket down, the water came, and I filled up the bucket. But as it started to come up to her, she jumped up. I had a bucket in one hand. She jumped in my arm in the other one. And, and, and with the water shaking, I run and take her out of the water and set her down and give her the bucket. And just as I was preparing to follow her, I noticed a strange phenomenon. It was strange. From my hands, since I've been in the water, there was a dripping. Dripping. It caught my attention. Actually, I was stunned at the revelation. I watched the dripping. It was so shocking that what I was beginning to think about that I went back down into the water. And as it came back up, I just let it run on my hands and let it drip again. Just drip. You know, preachers can be strange, can't we, at times? <laughs> but what I was thinking about was this drip. Everybody say perspective. This drip, this drip was very much like my life in comparison to the vastness of the ocean. And I realized at that very moment that when I compare my life and its perspective to the perspective of God reflected in the ocean. That my life is nothing more than a trip. And as I thought more deeply about it, all that I am is captured in that trip. All of my relationships in that trip. All of my influence in that trip. If I live to be a hundred years old, those hundred, that hundred of, that hundred years in the trip, whatever money I accumulate in the trip, whatever dream I imagine in the trip, it's all wrapped up in the trip. Whatever accomplishment and triumph in the trip, whatever crisis and tragedy, it's all in the trip. Everybody say trip. 
Recognizing the importance of the drip, I thought, wow, I better hold on to my drip. <laughs> I thought, let me take it home. But as I thought about what would it be like to try to take my drip away from the ocean home, another thought dawned on me that, that I really couldn't do it because one or two things would happen. Either the drip would squeeze through my fingers or after a few steps, it would evaporate. evaporate. And then I had another thought. My other thought was, but what if I take the drip and put it back in the ocean? Suddenly, that drip that contained my life and my influences and my tragedies and my triumphs and my crisis that is limited in, in both definition and scope and impact. Suddenly, if I drop it back into the vastness of the ocean, uh, it takes on new meaning. It takes on new life. It becomes, in a sense, an eternal experience. So I guess that's why I'm here. Tell you guys, especially you young people, be a good steward of your drip. Don't try to hold it to yourself. Drop it in the ocean. Reconnect it with the vastness of a God who loves you in an everlasting way. And even your tragedy and your crises that on their own, they have no sense, no meaning like this, this crisis in the Philippines and, and other crises that you know about. But take that drip and drop it in the vastness of the reliability and the eternality of God. And what appears to have no meaning ultimately finds itself in a greater plan. I conclude with this. One of my favorite stories is in Acts 7. Stephen, first model of the church, martyr of the church. He's finished preaching and the folk that he's preached to about the crucifixion of Christ, they are convicted and they say, we don't like what you're preaching. And so I hope you guys don't do this tonight. But they, they decided to stone him because they didn't like what he's preaching. And so uh, they proceeded to stone him. And as he's being stoned, the text says he looks up and as he's dying, he sees the glory of God. The heavens open up and he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing up. Everybody say standing up. Yeah. Standing up on the right hand of God. And, and if I could get Stephen into the dialogue with us tonight, if I could get him into the dialogue with, with Jackie and into the dialogue with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Stephen would say to you, look, look, that drip that you call life, you'll find yourself in some circumstances that doesn't always make sense because the world is broken and there's evil in the world. Yes, yes, yes. The drip will find itself in vulnerable positions, but God will always be a dependable God. And sometimes God will treat you like he did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jackie. Sometimes he will let you go into the fiery furnace and only as the fiery furnace burns and you find yourself grappling with disease, only as the fiery furnace burns and you find yourself trying to put the broken pieces of a relationship back together, only as the fiery furnace burns and you find yourself trying to rebuild a dream that has completely deploded, will the people see the God in your life that you profess and your children will see it 
and your siblings will see it and your colleagues will see it like the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar saw it and they would declare, I have finally seen the Most High God right in the midst of your broken life that grapples in faith in your drip. But Stephen would say, sometimes God doesn't bring you out See, we'll say sometime God steps back and allows death to overtake you like he did me. And it seems meaningless. And you wonder, where is God? But Stephen will point you to the clues in the text. And he said, there was a young man named Saul that the coach fell at. He watched my stoning, but he heard my preaching. And in the next chapter, it talks about how he gave proof, approval to it. And by the time you get to chapter 9, that young man, Saul, has been converted to Paul. And the reason I believe that he was open to conversion is the most powerful sermon he ever heard that he couldn't get off his mind, that he wrestled with as he slept, was a dying man called Stephen preaching about a Christ. And because Stephen was faithful even unto death, Saul became Paul, wrote most of the New Testament, gave us our reformed faith, and how the world would be different if Stephen hadn't died by putting his drip in the ocean. And I don't know about you, but I want to be like Stephen. That even when the world falls apart, you know, there are some things I don't understand. I'm finished preaching. I'm let y'all finish. But let me just say this. There are some things I don't understand. I want to confess it tonight. I don't understand how a 26-year-old young man that's in my worship uh, community back home uh, uh, can be dying of cancer. I don't get that. I don't understand how it's possible uh, for a, a, a fella who is about 28 years old, just got married three months earlier, pulled off to the side of the road to help somebody else who was in an accident, and as he got ready to go to help them, a car hit him and killed him. I, I don't understand. I don't understand the, the sweeping of the storms in the lives of innocent people in Philippines. But I, I know it has something to do with the brokenness of life. I know it has something to do with evil in the world. But, 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 but this is what I'm completely confident of. Even in the midst of things that seemingly don't make sense, God always is a God to be trusted. And he has the first word and he has the last word. And Stephen says that in those moments when we die not knowing the answer, that's all right. If we die with faith, God has a way of standing up and said that I'll use even your death to accomplish my purposes. So take your trip. It's your trip. It's your trip. Drop it with full confidence back in the ocean called God and trust his love and know that he will have the last word. And his last word as we see through the resurrection of Jesus will always be a word of life of salvation, of eternal love, of hope. And all God's people said, Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, 
or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.